our second In the Company of Stars special episode. For this episode, my guest will be taking my side of the table as the interviewer while I answer his questions about my new book, Luminarium, A Grimoire of Cunning Conjuration. My interviewer, Alexander Deckman, is a magician who works with traditional tea ceremony, devotion to Hermes, and with the Greek magical papyri. He was also one of the magicians on the beta test team of Luminarium, and had the opportunity to read it and try it out before I sent it to the printers. He felt like the task of interviewing me for the podcast was significantly more difficult than preparing for and using the ritual system in Luminarium. He asked me some questions that will give insight into the book, but much more broadly insight into work with spirits in general. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Hi, Alexander. Thanks for being here today. How are you doing? Hello, BJ. I'm doing pretty good. How are you? I'm well, thank you. So um, after being able to read and sort of test run Luminarium as part of the beta team, I uh, am definitely very excited to be able to ask you these questions about it um, and to be able to get this book into the hands of all these magicians who are waiting for it. <laughs> yep, I think it'll be good once people have it. Very cool. Yeah, so um, it definitely... It was definitely a different experience for me um, compared to other, I guess, like grimoires and stuff that I'd gotten my hands on. Um, it was just so kind of user-friendly, which, which I feel like is not the typical case with a lot of grimoires for one reason or another, you know. But um, with this, yeah, you really could just jump right into it, and it kind of cut out the whole personal head games for me a lot of like when can I get this done how can I do this it was just kind of like it cuts right through like that bullshit for lack of a better term and gets you right on the path to doing whatever it is you're going to do with it you know yeah that was that was the goal was to get something out there that people could just jump right into uh without having to to muddle over whether or not it was something they could or couldn't do so I know that um I know that you say in like the introduction to the book that you pull from a couple different grimoires to kind of take influence from and to utilize aspects and pull it all together into the like unique structure of Luminarium. What were, uh, what were the grimoires that you chose to pull from? Well, I used primarily the Greek magical papyri, the heptameron, and the higramantia. And I picked those because the magical papyri just are fascinating, and they have some really interesting approaches that I think can definitely add to people's experience of working with the grimoires. And there was a particular PGM spell that I had looked at previously, and I talked about a little bit in the introduction to Living Spirits, where to me it looks very much like a prototype for grimoire magic and so in exploring and studying that particular spell there were elements of it that I thought could be pulled out that aren't used in contemporary grimoire magic and could be added back in to more of a modern grimoire approach and be very additive and so I chose to use those pieces from the PGM that way. The heptameron is just kind of my go-to as a base starting point for grimoire work uh, that and Cambridge Book of Magic and the Book of Oberon are probably the the ones that I like to look at the most, along with some of the material and discovery of witchcraft. And so in this case, the 
elements that line up with the traditional grimoires are elements that are pulled primarily from the heptameron because it provides i think kind of a good framework and baseline for what your essential grimoire work looks like when looking at sort of the uh, late medieval early renaissance grimoires then for the Higramantia, there's some very interesting approaches to planetary magic in the Higramantia and to the interaction and seeing the spirits in the Higramantia. And I think there's a lot of points there where it also strips down quite a bit of what's happening in the Grimoires being an, an earlier source text, potentially. There were pieces from that that I've used in the past that worked very well for making things easier for the scryer. I wanted to kind of combine those elements in because I wanted something that created a system that allowed people who maybe didn't have a ton of scrying skill naturally or a ton of facility with conjuring spirits naturally to be able to use magical components from existing historical systems in order to amplify what they're doing on the ground in their, their actual conjuration ritual. And so those texts seem to be the best texts to choose for that. I definitely thought when I was reading like the introduction and you um, you expressed that those were the texts you, you were drawing from the most, I thought it was really interesting, especially because as far as I'm aware, there some of the, I mean, of course, the, the papyri, but even the other two are, they're, it's a compilation of texts that are some of the earliest works that we really draw from in the Western magical, I guess, tradition. Um, and it, it especially after, um, you know, test running Luminarium, it's very interesting in my head to kind of recognize that pulling from these earlier texts for the purpose of creating a grimoire that kind of helps simplify, but not oversimplify, but kind of, I just, I guess just cut the draws. Uh, I, I just found it interesting how going back to those original sources um, that are kind of pre, um, what, like 1700s, 1800s, um, how those tended to be the ones that were the most useful for streamlining and like spirit magic. Yeah, no, I think that as we get into a lot of the later texts, as the Catholicism starts getting pulled out of the grimoires, then it gets replaced by complication. The as we go to the earlier grimoires where it's still they're still intended in a generally Catholic context intended to be used by conjurers who have some form of holy orders in place then there's a little bit more simplicity as far as the preparation and the tools and the execution and as we get into the later grimoires it starts adding a lot of things because it's my interpretation is that it's attempting to kind of amp up the material that the magician is is working with and sort of the sacramental power of those materials because the magician is not necessarily carrying with them that same sort of sacramental power that they would have in some of the earlier texts and so yeah in looking at those obviously the pgm is way older than most grimoire material that's out there the Higramantia, there's a lot of dates theorized for when those texts first began to appear. And of course, it's a whole series of texts that, that make up that Higramantia tradition. Uh, but they could be as early as the 10th century. Uh, 
quite possibly later than that though, but still most likely one of the earlier sets of Solomonic texts. And the Heptameron also has a bit of a debated date because it could be later closer to its publication date or it could be earlier closer to when uh, Peter of Abano was, was alive and writing. Uh, but since it's sort of questionable whether or not he actually wrote the text, it may be later than him. Uh, either way, it's still a text that's, that's relatively early, but not necessarily one of the earliest. But definitely before we start getting a lot of the reform impacts on magical texts. I, I think it was really cool to to pull from those specifically. I also one one of the things that I really liked was seeing um, the primary spell that you pulled from from the Greek magical papyri because it's kind of one that um, you don't really you don't really see it or hear it talked about as much, especially not as much as say like you know the headless right or Stella of Jew or anything like that. It was cool to see that utilized in this work in a way that was number one so effective but also at the same time i mean it's still it's still all flowed like it, it didn't feel choppy it, it all seemed integrated and worked together and it, it was really cool to see it done that way um well thank you and I, I think it's it has stood out to me that it is a spell that is often somewhat overlooked I think some of that is because it's a little more general in terms of what spirit it is conjuring, whereas a lot of PGM spells are very clearly spells dealing with Helios or dealing with some form of uh, syncretized Hecate. This one is one that doesn't really get a named spirit. It's just kind of calling on the light and then using that light to command the spirit that's ultimately called on. And I think depending on how someone looks at it, it could be a little confusing as to what the spell is actually for because it, it doesn't define who it's calling or for what purpose. It more defines the process of how to call something. And I think that may be why it gets overlooked somewhat. But I also think it's one of the, the very obviously useful spells once you start to dig into it. It definitely added an element that I mean, for me, being somebody who uses the PGM quite a lot, it may just be personal bias, but like it added a bit of my own personal comfort to it. But then it kind of opened my eyes to a spell that I didn't really work with that often. And kind of the more and more that I, I guess, recognize how it was being integrated into the work of Luminarium itself sort of opened my eyes to the greater purpose of the spell in a way that I don't think I really necessarily would have put together on my own if I hadn't seen it in the Luminarium structure. Um, so that was definitely really cool. Uh, another one of the questions that I had when I was working Luminarium, you hear a lot of magicians these days talk about amending emergency issues that pop up and how it's kind of easy to get sucked into that hole of not really doing magic to prepare for emergencies or whatever but like just to ameliorate and amend them um and then you know you have stuff like jason talking about always be conjuring and that kind of strategic sorcery mentality and how you know we can avoid those scenarios entirely if we're conjuring all the time for things like prosperity security health and you know protection and stuff and how that can kind of help get us out of that hole of just you know waiting for emergencies so to speak before we actually 
you know, dust off our grimoires and don some robes and get to doing magic. So like with Luminarium, it really kind of seemed like the more and more you would get familiar with this book, it would just make it that much easier to, I guess, just immerse yourself into your own, like, sort of, I mean, the way Jason puts it, like, sort of, sort of, like, strategic magical world. So, like, using Luminarium as, like, a basis, um, I mean, what are your thoughts on daily magical practice and routines like that? And how do you think something like Luminarium can help people kind of tackle these obstacles of the contemporary magician? Yeah, well, I think there's there's a lot in there to unpack. And you can kind of look at it from a few different angles. So before getting to the specifics of daily magical practice and Luminarium's role in that, just the idea of people holding off and pulling things out to deal with emergencies versus people having a regular sorcerer's practice or regular conjuring practice, I think that's kind of the idea behind Rufus's sort of prosperity gospel of magic, the idea that you start working with the sphere of Jupiter so that you get sort of wealth and stability and fecundity in order in your life. And then once those things are all arranged, you don't have to be worried about that. You don't have to be distracted. And you can just kind of focus on doing the magical work that you're doing to develop yourself because Rufus's ultimate structure is one where it's, it's developmental. It's trying to move you through a, a series of initiations and dealing with the mundane stuff is to put you in a place to be able to do that. On the flip side of that, one thing that my mentor used to say to me when I was learning was if you get into a conflict with another magician, the best way to beat them is to bless them and do good works for them so that their life gets in order and they've got all the good things that they need and want because then they'll be too settled and happy with what they have to be worried about doing magic and worry about having a problem with you. So <laughs> the, the idea that if we get everything in order, sometimes that makes it so that we no longer are thinking about magical things because we don't have a need can be a real one. I mean, that was something Victor Anderson used to say was that witchcraft would always exist as long as there were people that, that felt powerless and felt like there was something they were lacking or that they, they had need for. I'm, I'm paraphrasing him, but it's a sentiment that has been held out there for years as far as how people understand the nature of witchcraft and the nature of magic as something that is connected to people who are oppressed or people who are somehow in need of some recourse that they don't have through normal mundane means. And so having something there to kind of spur you on to want to work in order to bring things into your life is definitely an impetus for people doing magic. And for people who maybe are drawn to magic because they have some interest and they have some need, but maybe they don't have a real calling towards magic, then yeah, maybe if everything in their life is in order, that's enough for them. And they'll kind of put it away and not think about it and not do it otherwise. But even for people who do have some sort of call towards magic, where it's something that they feel drawn to as an important part of their lives, sometimes there's a lot of effort to magic. And sometimes there's things that get in the way. And so even if things are good in your life, um, there's other things that are more immediately pressing. There's other things that seem like they are more immediately gratifying or rewarding uses of your time. There's other things that don't involve the, the mental effort or the, the time that you have to carve out for magic. 
And so sometimes if there's no pressing need, it's easy to just say, well, I'll try this experiment later. I'll try this thing later. Oh, it's too much to set up all this stuff. Or, oh, I haven't copied the pieces out of my books in order to have my ritual together. And I don't have time to do that now. Or, oh, I missed the planetary hour. There's lots of lots of ways to make excuses and, and not even to make excuses. I don't want to trivialize or belittle that situation. That's just life. It's just a real thing for people. And if you get into a sort of state where instead of magic being something where you have to build up all this time and effort, you have to put together all these these pieces and tools, you have to collect together all these ritual scripts. If it's something where it's kind of woven into your life and is part of your life, then it's something where when you need bigger magic, it's a little easier to go about it because you're sort of already in that place. But also you can kind of manage the flow of things in your life somewhat where magic is already sort of working to help you so that maybe there aren't as many of those emergency situations. Maybe uh, the emergency situations that happen aren't as extreme. And I mean, just because you're regularly routinely doing magic or regularly routinely creating a relationship with spirits doesn't mean that all of problems or emergencies that could arise will go away, but it can definitely help manage some of that process in your life. If you have spirits that are sort of looking out for you and trying to ameliorate things before they become major issues, uh, trying to bring good things into your life, trying to keep bad things out of your life. And so that gets to that always be conjuring idea that it's not necessarily that you need to be every day laying out a circle and putting on your magic robes and pulling out your sword that you've carved all sorts of names into and using a pound of incense to call up every spirit that you can. But maybe it's a matter of going outside and thanking the nature spirits in your area or waking up and saying a series of prayers that connect with the spirits for that day or with the spirits that you work with or routinely thanking your ancestors and thanking other spirits that you work with regularly so that that's just something that's kind of part of what's going on in your life and i think that's a little different than what people normally think of when we talk about daily magical practice when we talk about daily magical practice, we're kind of coming at it from a post-Golden Dawn worldview where, and it's, I guess it's kind of crazy that we we use that as like a, a time marker. Uh, I sort of wonder if like the Golden Dawn adepts ever knew that that would be how they were looked at as this like marker in the history of magic, like <laughs> Christ, year of our Lord. We've got pre-Golden Dawn, post-Golden Dawn. <laughs> And so the, the view that the, the kind of post-Golden Dawn world has had about daily practice is, well, you wake up in the morning and you do your banishing ritual, the pentagram, and then you go to bed at night and do your banishing ritual, the pentagram, or some people will make one of them an invoking ritual. There's reasons why you would consistently be doing the banishing ritual if you're someone that's starting out in magic. Um, if you're coming from a Thelemic perspective, then maybe it's you do Libra Resh every day, the, the four prescribed times of day. There's, there's various other sort of routine rituals that you might be doing 
And that's kind of the idea that people have behind daily practice. It's almost like having sort of a weird gymnastic monastic practice that is built into your everyday life. And I don't think that that's necessarily something that is really necessary. I think there's points in a magician's development where those sorts of magical aerobic practices are useful on a routine basis. I think there's other things that a magician can do to develop as a beginning magician also, aside from those, but we haven't really hit a point where modern European traditional magic has, has put forth anything that's that kind of beginner magician, developmental magician, here's how to start out and here's what to do kind of thing. And once we have that, maybe there will be stuff that is sort of your daily practice that is kind of more like the post-Golden Dawn worldview of daily practice, but maybe something that's more in line with developing spirit magic practice. And I guess, I mean, maybe that's some of what Luminarium actually provides is, is how to do that. And in fact, 100% that's what Luminarium provides. But I think that sometimes the idea of daily magical practice can just be talk to your ancestors, talk to the nature spirits, say the the prayers for the angels for that day, whatever your normal things are to just kind of connect with the spirits and keep those energies flowing in your life so that you have those contacts and those allies who are going to sort of have your back and look out for you. Other times it can be more involved purification rituals, prayers to create contacts with spirits, uh, or things that are intended to develop certain ways of thinking, ways of apprehending the world, uh, certain things that, that kind of help flex the psychic muscles and the magical muscles in order to help develop you to be able to do ritual work. And it just sort of depends on where you are in your practice and what you're doing. And as far as Luminarium goes, Luminarium provides a lot of techniques that are intended for that. In addition to providing sort of a, a specialized conjuration method it provides a lot of things that you can use leading up to those conjurations in order to further empower and further prepare you to make you more successful in those conjurations. But it takes the approach that you can select which ones make sense for you and you can do them over the amount of time that makes sense for you. And you shouldn't let needing to take three days or seven days or nine days of fasting prevent you from doing your conjuration work. If there's something where you have to do something and you've only got a day or two to prepare, here's a handful of ways to get yourself purified. Here's a handful of ways to connect with the spirits, do those things for the day or two that you have to get ready and then do your conjuration. If you have time and you're just sort of on a regular schedule of I'm going to conjure things when I need to conjure them and there's nothing immediately pressing or I'm going to set up a cycle of conjuration experiments and there's nothing immediately pressing, then yeah, make these things part of a routine daily thing until you start to see the effects of them and you start to see the effects on your conjurations. And that's, I guess, kind of my view on the whole always be conjuring daily practice sort of thing. Yeah, so I mean, I definitely see what you mean by that about how um, like the always be conjuring definitely helps in the sense that it consistently and constantly gets you engaging in your spirit world. 
like on that notion then, as you get better and better and develop a better relationship with the spirits around you, your ancestors, stuff like that, would you say that maintaining your magical routine gets easier as you get more experience? I think when I was a kid, it was very easy to be excited about all of these things and use that excitement as a way to jump in and do more and more. As I got older, I don't know how much of it was sort of the element of having done stuff for a while and so some of the excitement of it is out versus how much of it was that there's just so much more happening in life and that gets in the way. But I would say it can definitely remain difficult over time to make yourself decide like, okay, I want to do big ritual work. As far as small day-to-day -day stuff and small acts of magic, then yeah, the more magic you do, the more you kind of come into contact with magic and get used to using magic and the more you find simpler ways to do it, then yes, that becomes easier over time. And I think as we begin adopting more of a model of building relationships with the spirits in the world around us, then that's something that we can do in a very simple, organic manner. And so that's something that becomes simpler and easier over time. I think as far as the big stuff goes, it's either got to be something where you're in the routine and not necessarily the routine of doing big stuff, but the routine of doing some sort of spirit work, some sort of magic, or it's got to be something where you're excited for it. Otherwise, yeah, it's easy to find things to get in the way. And I don't think that changes over time, but I do think that the more prepared you are, the more you have things ready to go. If you have space dedicated to it, if you have your tools kind of already set up and put together, or if they're in a specific spot organized and easy to draw from, then that makes it easier. If you have your rituals that you're going to use scripted out where you can just pull them out when you need them, that makes it easier. The more prepared you are and the more you eliminate the ability for excuses, the easier it is. Yeah, so I definitely realized um, while working the Luminarium system that it definitely alleviated that stress for me that like, you know, especially considering the fact that this was a new grimoire, you know, there's, there's a difference between the grimoire you've worked with a ton of different times and, you know, pulling out a brand new one. And it, that initial kind of run through, I feel like for me, that's definitely something that has always taken a lot of effort, a lot of time. I mean, one of the good things about this, quarantine is that I've got time I got all the time in the world at this point but you know like if my actual life were back to normal that that's a big undertaking to kind of take on but I realized with Luminarium that a lot of that stress was kind of smoothed out it, it was easier for me to just pick this up and run with it even though you know I only gotten it in my hands maybe a day or two before so like how were you able to alleviate that process with Luminarium? Well a big part of it was intentionally putting the ritual scripts in in such a way that you don't have to go put a script together you don't have to retype out or recopy pieces from throughout the book or go to a bunch of different books and pull pieces everything's right there in one spot for each particular planet that you're going to work with so it's basically your working ritual book right there 
And I think for a lot of people, I know for me specifically, that can be a hurdle sometimes just saying, all right, I've got to put together all these ritual pieces and have my ritual script ready to go. If it's not something where you're used to working that ritual script and a lot of the memoirs, a lot of the way they're set up, it's not something where the ritual is laid out all in a simple order that you can just follow from the book. You've got to copy the different pieces and arrange them because each piece is sort of in a section that's describing how to do that thing. And then you have to draw the, the pieces that you actually say it do from the rest of the instructions and put them together into a usable script. And so this sort of does that for you where it's got all the pieces already there ready to go. As far as organizing the tools, the tools are mostly things that are things that are available in your household. And so they're things that most people are gonna have on hand and there's not a lot of special prep that has to be done to the tools. So it's a lot easier to pull those things together because you can probably sort of read through it and think, okay, yeah, I know where I've got this. I know where I've got that. Let me go grab these things. All right, I've got all my tools. And if there's a tool that you don't have, it's the sort of thing that you can probably run to the grocery store or maybe to Walmart or Target and pick up. It's not something where you're going to need to go to your hardware store and buy a bunch of specialized construction tools and special order materials from online to have the right type of wood and whatever other materials have to be derived from some secret mine in the center of the earth and specially constructed on special days in order to use them. Everything that you're going to be using because most of the tools are based on older magical sources. They're things that are simple to get. And so I think that alleviates a lot of the stress and it's not super tool heavy either. Uh, a lot of things are, are just sort of very baseline. It's, it's the bare minimum of what you need. I think it only took three days after I got my actual copy to have all my tools, I think even already consecrated and like concisely together and ready to go. So, I mean, definitely, I don't think I'd ever expedited that process that quickly with a with another grimoire so it definitely it definitely worked well for me it was definitely it was really noticed like you kind of raise your eyebrow uh <laughs> when you're just like wait that's it I've, I've got it all together all right let's go another question that i definitely while working through the uh through the book that kind of popped up so i was wondering do you reserve certain requests for angels and other requests for different spirits like you've talked about how luminarium is very versatile in how you can use it for different purposes, um, whether it's, you know, work with angels, whether it's specifically ancestral, whether it's elementals, uh, or, or even, you know, demons or infernal. But so, like, if you are going to utilize it for these different spirit categories and classes, do you kind of differentiate between each class based on what it is you're wanting out of that specific ritual? Do you, like... How do you go about that? Well, I, I do sort of have a breakdown in my head for, for some of that. But I also think that for a lot of things, you're going to want to incorporate multiple different types of spirits. So like in Luminarium structure, everything involves your ancestors. Everything is also going to involve certain divine powers 
and the divine powers that are called upon are ones that are sometimes grouped with the titans but they're not exactly titanic forces like if you look at the titans there are some beings that are actual proper titans and then there are other beings that are part of the underlying forces of nature and just the beings that are part of the structure of existence and so those particular forces are the ones that are called upon in setting up the, the overall spiritual space of the ritual working as far as who you're ultimately conjuring for something that you need. Angels are great for advice and guidance and they're very powerful beings and they can be very helpful for whatever your goals are. But a lot of times when you conjure an angel, the way that they're going to deal with addressing the goal with you. And some of this will also depend on the system that you're using. I find that some systems are much more communicative and other systems are much more, okay, here's the thing that I need. Go try to do this, this thing that I need. And Luminarium is designed to be one that's, that's very open for communication. A lot of times angels are going to try to guide you to improving areas of your life and ways that you're dealing with your life in order to accomplish goals or in order to make the way open and easy for whatever goal it is that you you have and you're requesting their help with so they provide help but their their way of providing help is often kind of like okay you want this well let's do these things in order to make this more tenable for you and then we'll see what we can do about making it actually happen and that just gets into some of what the nature of their existence is and and what kind of their role in the cosmos is the aerial spirits i find are a little bit more useful for material things because they are a sublunary spirit. They're spirits that reside within the material nature of the world. The elementals are very useful for things that are material, but they're also not necessarily your sort of higher functioning big picture spirits. So a lot of times they're useful for helping other spirits accomplish things and sort of grounding what the other spirits are doing into a material result so the way that things are set up in Miriam, you might call the elementals as part of the conjuration you're doing so they participate in the conjuration with you and then you call upon whatever angel or upon the aerial kings and their ministers and request what it is you want from them and then the elementals are there present to hear that request and understand that that's what you're looking for and so then they work with those other spirits in order to help create what your your goal is uh, your ancestors are there to help guide the process overall you can augment luminarium a bit in order to work with infernal spirits as well and if you do that then those are also going to be spirits that are very good at creating material changes and making things happen in your life and it's not going to carry the same well, maybe if you fix these things in your personality, then you'll have more friends and people around you that you'll get from angels. They'll just be like, oh, you want to have a party and have a lot of people show up at the party? Sure, we'll make a lot of people show up at the party. The um, You just might have to constrain how they do it. But yeah, it's there is some difference in my experience as far as different types of spirits with how they approach uh, different goals 
And I don't think it's necessarily so much that you don't want to go to any particular spirit with a certain type of goal because they won't like that goal. I think it's just more that they have different ways of looking at the world and interacting with the world. And so the place that they're going to work towards your goal and where they're going to be focused on how the goal is manifesting will be different. Okay. Yeah. So like, I guess that, that was one of the other things that I wondered is like, are there then rather than just simply discerning, you know, what you're going to ask of whatever spirit based on the type of result that the spirit gets. Do you, do you ever find an issue with like, uh, like, like, is there an etiquette to it? Like, are there things that you don't ask of certain spirits because they do find it offensive? Or is that just kind of like not existent? <laughs> like, like just not an issue? Um, I think that there's, there's some room for that be an issue but i think for the most part it's not usually going to be an issue so luminarium doesn't really deal so much with calling upon uh the nature spirits in your locality but if say you were invested in an oil transport company you probably wouldn't want to go to like the local river spirits and ask them for help with putting a pipeline in they're not going to be down with that <laughs> so that's a good way to have all of the horrible folk tales about evil water spirits happen in your life <laughs> so you've got to look a little bit at the interest of the spirits and i think the more spirits are tied to material existence the more spirits are going to have personalities that impact how they view different goals i know there have been times where I've brought stuff to my ancestors and usually they're pretty helpful about things that I bring to them and that I need help with. And I would say that some of the stuff where I would think, okay, maybe you don't ask your ancestors for help with this or for that. It's more about my biases and my interpretations of things than it is about stuff that they actually care about as spirits. But there are some things that are still going to be issues. Like your ancestors want you to help support your family. So if you're going and asking them for help with something that's damaging to your family overall, that might not be as in line with what they want to help you with. I've, I know personally, I've had one or two instances where I've turned to my ancestors for stuff and gotten a response back of more why don't you just be more merciful and helpful and accepting why do you want to be against this other person on this thing and that has to do with how maybe their advice for me is in general for what it is to be better and be more successful or it might have to do with certain ancestors that are kind of in the lead of the way that I approached my ancestor court, what their perceptions were. Um, I know in my experience, when I've gotten that response, it's very much been along the lines of what my father would have told me in that situation had I gone and asked him about it. And he's usually the primary ancestor that I'm calling on. So you're going to get that where when you're dealing with your ancestors, their personalities may come through in how they want to help you handle a situation or whether or not a situation is appropriate to ask them about. As far as angels and demons, 
I don't think there's really much issue there. I know personally, I kind of go into it sometimes with this thought of, well, maybe if I justify my request as, as far as like, well, this is why this fits with God's plan, or this is why God would want this to be the case, uh, or this person is so unrighteous that you need to do something about it, or this person is so righteous that they need your reward and your benefit and your help. I think some of that might just be my conditioning as far as how I've grown up being led to think about angels and interactions with angels. I don't know if the angels actually really need you to put it in those terms or need to try to like justify when a work is kind of questionable to make it seem more moral. Although I have had teachers that have presented it that way, but that also might just be biases on their part. And I think sometimes it's hard for us to eliminate our biases when we approach spirits but I think it's still a good exercise to try to explore and understand what our biases are versus what a spirit's biases might be or when a spirit might not have biases because that's where we can start to more easily understand when we're actually interacting with a spirit and when we're being told something by a spirit versus when it's just our own self-serving uh, sort of search for an answer and us trying to provide an answer for ourselves. Uh, so I think sometimes we have to get outside of those preconceived notions of these spirits are going to be okay with this, these spirits are not going to be okay with this, but we also need to recognize that, yeah, there are real times where that is going to be a thing, but in my experience, that's definitely more for spirits that are more tied to material existence and material life. So moving away from the etiquette of what you would be asking of the spirits, when, when you talk about how the personality of the ancestor you might be asking something from might kind of flavor the way that they respond. Um, in turn, how do you think somebody's ancestors who was, say, conservative Christian, like fundamentalist, and Luminarium specifically draws on Persephone and Charon and, you know, Hades to draw forth like the blessed dead and everything. How do you think that personality might uh, translate between, I guess, the operation and the ancestor? If if that sort of modality was not one that they worked with in their living years specifically, like, is that a non-issue? Is that something to kind of keep in mind? What are your opinions on that? Well, I think this is something that I've addressed a couple of times in some blog posts and also in living spirits, but it's not something that I talk about in luminarium. So maybe it is good to talk about it here a little bit with the dead. There's a change that happens when you die. The part of dying is healing. It's healing from the various ailments and diseases that are impinging upon you at the end of life but it's also healing from a lot of the emotional and mental baggage that you've carried with you. And so those things that aren't really a part of who you are, but maybe have kind of colored how you see things or how you look at things, those things are things that you should heal from in part of that, that dying process. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone becomes perfect when they die. There are still people who could be problematic uh, amongst the ancestors. 
And some of that has to do with things that are just so deeply set in them that they don't heal from it just from them, that process of, of dying. They're things that are set more in where they become kind of intrinsic to who they are. And so that's stuff where they might need more work, which you as a magician in their family can help provide in order to kind of heal and move past those, those damaging parts of self that may still be retained. Not to say that being a conservative Christian is necessarily always a damaging part of self, but some of those specific views are things where once you're dead, you're going to be in a much broader context and able to see a lot more. And so there's not as much of a hard and fast, this is how it is, and the world can only be this way, and things can only be interacted with that way. Because honestly, if you're dead and you want your family to talk to you and to feed you and to soothe you, you're probably not going to get that if your family is only looking at the world through a Protestant evangelical worldview. You might get it from like an old Catholic worldview, uh, but even there, it's probably going to be somewhat limited unless it's an old Catholic worldview that has built itself around other folk traditions and folk customs that incorporate that. And to some level, there's got to be some magic there. And so the dead sort of are in a position where they have to accept magic because otherwise they're just set in a corner by themselves. Plus, they're also in a position where they can kind of see it and see that it's a thing and see that it's okay. So in my experience, that's not so much of a problem. The dead are not going to be like, whoa, whoa, why are you doing magic? <laughs> Call me. Don't give me these gifts. Don't feed me until you figure out a way to do it without any of this magic stuff. It's just it just doesn't work that way. So they're they're not going to be like that. Now, as far as how you're approaching them magically, yeah, they might have some particular preferences with that. I know my ancestors pushed me towards some more Marian approaches to things, and my own attachment to Marianism has come from work with my ancestors. I think that that was something that surprised me a little bit because it wasn't something that I was aware of any of them having an involvement with in life, but it may be that just that particular element of Christianity is something that they were able to touch in death because they were still kind of coming to death from a Christian background. So one thing that I suggest with that is Luminarium uses this very Greek structure for working with the ancestors, but it's completely possible to change that. As long as you have all the same components in place, you can use other divine and spiritual beings to contact the ancestors. And I think that's something where it gets weird in contemporary magic, where people want to look at different systems and say, oh, well, I don't like the religious nature of that system, or I don't like the symbol set that they're using, so I want to change it. And people don't understand all of the deep set elements of the symbol set that's there. Like in, for example, the Lester Banishing Ritual of the Pentagram. 
a lot of times people change that to something that is not a Judeo-Christian structure. And so they think it's as simple as finding other God names to put in place to deal with the the different names of the quarters. And so they try to look at the nature of the quarters and pick God names that connect to those, those specific quarters. But if you really look at it, the divine names that are used, there's a way in which they flow together and in which they interact. There's some element of how they can be viewed as connecting to the quarters, but there's other divine names that might make more sense for the particular quarters that are there. So the actual nature of the quarters is not really the important thing for assessing what name should be used there. But one of the big parts of them that gets overlooked all the time is they're all four letter names. And that's important to the structure of what's happening there is that you're using these series of four letter names. So when you start throwing in completely different divine names from different structures in different religious systems, it doesn't really work as a trade out for working on goal that that's working. Then you get things like the grimoires where sometimes people try to say that these individual texts were inspired by the specific spirits that are mentioned in them. And so you can't ever change anything because each text is discreetly its own system of magic. And that's just 100% not true. Uh, most of the texts that we read are texts where there's a bunch of different manuscripts that say slightly different things that have been put together into a single version of the text. And that's what we're familiar with. Uh, so we're not even looking at something that's the intact original manuscript in most cases. Even if you're looking at something where you're just working with one particular manuscript, that manuscript has been copied from other manuscripts and likely has changes and adaptations or just mistakes in it. And we can also see evidence between different textual titles where they're borrowing things from each other and amending and changing things from each other and combining things. So it was always something where it was overall a singular system in the sense that there was a worldview, there was a series of basic ideas about how the practices looked uh, there was some basic prayer language that tended to be used, but not a system in the sense of here's exactly the way this is done for this particular thing from this particular source. And so there's room for adaptation and change and mixing and substitution, but you still need a very deep understanding of what's happening with each piece and why the pieces are structured the way they are in order to be able to go in and make those changes and make those adaptations in a way that's meaningful and still works. And so in Luminarium, most of the things that are there are pretty simple things. They're things that you probably shouldn't need to really change or adapt too much, but there's still some room for adaptation. There's room for saying, okay, I don't have this exact tool, but I have this other thing that'll do something similar, and I think that'll work. There's room for saying, I'm not exactly comfortable with this prayer, but this other text has a prayer that works in a similar way and does the same thing, and I've used that before, and I'm comfortable with that, and swapping out a prayer like that. And for the ancestors, it actually talks about being able to make that swap. And so it presents a ritual for working with your ancestors outside of the context of the actual conjuration. But then you also do that same ritual 
as a right within the conjuration when you're doing the conjurations. And it presents it in sort of a Greek-based structure. But you can easily swap those Greek figures out for Christian figures or for Jewish figures or figures from any religion, as long as you understand that religion's view of the afterlife and what spirits do what things in regards to the afterlife and you're picking the appropriate traditional spirits and you have an appropriate relationship with those spirits. And if it's one where it's more comfortable for you or where it's more comfortable for your dead, then that's fine and that that works. And it should be pretty simple to understand it. You just need to make sure you have all the same basic steps happening because you're engaging the dead for a particular reason in this case. There's, there's lots of ways to engage your ancestors. There's lots of ways to work with your ancestors. Some of them do very different things. And so you might engage your ancestors in a way that's just for talking with them and where there's not really a magical component. Uh, you might engage them in a way that's aggressively magical, where you're calling on them and empowering them to do stuff and binding them to do it. You might do it in a way where you're drawing on their power. You might do it in a way where you're asking them to sit with you and aid you. And this is more of the sit with you and aid you approach. And so as long as you've got the components that are necessary for that sort of approach, then yeah, you can make changes on that for what's more comfortable. As far as the other openings where you're drawing on some of the titanic forces, there's not going to be a lot of things that I can recommend that would be good alternatives for that. But yeah, maybe there are somewhere. Maybe you could use biblical passages uh, to call upon similar powers in a different context in order to get that same creation of the world approach going. Uh, but I think for the most part, in a Western mindset, those sort of Greek concepts are going to be ones that most magicians probably are going to be familiar with and comfortable with. We've been going on a lot about the adaptability of Luminarium and everything like that and how its overall structure and method was completely intended to be as fluid as you created it to be. We've addressed a couple different spirit classes and talked about, you know, different, I guess, cultural mindsets, different aspects and characteristics of those spirits themselves. But what would you say about completely porting Luminarium structure to working with I guess specifically infernal spirits like demons. I feel like I feel like that's the one that you would have to make the most adjustments to the actual working structure with Luminarium. So like, do you think when it comes to binding and preparing or protecting yourself from said demons and what would you do? What, what would you do differently? What would you add? What would you take away in order to do that? Uh, well, it, interestingly enough, the basic ritual structure for Luminarium is similar to a ritual that I've presented elsewhere, which was actually a ritual I performed at William Blake Lodge several years ago. And in that instance, we did conjure a demon and ask the demon for things. Individual people had the opportunity to come up and make packs with the demon. The scryer, once everyone had made their, their offerings as far as what they would offer, in exchange for what they wanted. And those were presented and the scryer spoke with the demon. The demon agreed that it would do them in exchange for the offerings that were offered. And people got the things that they asked for. There were some differences in terms of how things were done because it was designed as a group ritual 
it was designed kind of as a ritual to present this type of magic for people who were coming to the event. And so it had more participatory elements. A lot of the parts were expanded out for dealing with additional people. And some of the kind of create the structure of the world for the ritual space uh, was not as present in that version of the ritual. The major practical differences as far as conjuring a demon, basically it would be the same ritual structure that you have presented in the text, but then when you call upon the angel, instead of asking the angel for something, you would ask the angel for assistance with calling and constraining the particular demon that's being called. And so it does work the kind of the thwarting angel model. Although I think sometimes when we use that term, it implies a sort of relationship that doesn't have to always be a relationship. In addition to conjuring the angel, I would recommend also calling upon the king of the direction from which the demon arrives. And so depending on what text you're using as your source for your demons, uh, some of them will describe the coastal nature of the demon. Some do not, the, the majority don't. And in looking at that, because Luminarium is specifically planetary in nature, uh, which is what the title is referring to, you would want to look not just at the coastal nature of the spirit, but at what planet the spirit is ruled by. And so there is some debate about whether or not the infernal spirits are actually ruled by planets and whether or not certain models of assigning them are correct and accurate. So you've got some flexibility there for how you interpret that. I'm not going to tell you how to interpret that, especially since the book isn't really dealing with that specifically. But I would say if you can figure out a planet that you would understand the spirit as being under the auspices of, or if you are simply calling the spirit under the auspices of that planet, then you would do it using the conjuration for the angel of that planet. And you would call whichever of the four kings rules the direction that's associated with that planet, uh, which you can find in the table of four in uh, Agrippa's three books of occult philosophy. And then you would do the actual conjuration for the demon. There's a lot of different sources you can pull conjuration rituals from or conjuration prayers from. I would say use the, the ones from the Heptameron, uh, or you could use the ones from the Goetia, which is derived from the ones from the Heptameron. And that's about it as far as what you need to add. So would you recommend something more constraining than invoking the spirit into the bowl, such as like the triangle manifestation? I mean, you could maybe add a triangle if you wanted to. Uh, personally, I'm not super stuck on the triangle as a conjuration tool. It's not something that's super common. It's not something that's all over the grimoires. A lot of conjuration methods don't use one. And it's something that I think sticks out to me because when I was first learning to do grimoire work, there were not a lot of grimoires available. And so most people's familiarity was 100% the Goethe of Solomon. And so they just assumed anytime you're conjuring any spirit, there has to be a triangle. I have kind of a crummy YouTube video of a conjuration and people posted comments on it looking for a triangle. They were conjuring an angel. <laughs> The, 
the Kia Solomon, not using the Goetia. And everyone just seemed like, oh my gosh, these guys don't know what they're doing. They're not using a triangle. So maybe there's a little bit of kind of like a rebellious punk rock slash condescending intellectual book nerd part of me that is just like, ah, fuck you guys and your assumption that there needs to be a triangle. But also it's not something that's rampant through the grimoires. It's just not something that's there a lot of the time. There's reasons that they make sense in terms of the idea of connecting the, the shape to the idea of manifestation and the shape to the idea of constraining things. There's reasons why a triangle makes sense for that. And the idea of using divine names or using angelic names around the triangle as a way of creating that sort of nexus for constraint also makes sense. But there's ways that you can do that through simply binding the spirit and creating sort of a, a moment of ligation where the spirit is tied to a particular locus. And you can do that with the bowl. So when you conjure the spirit and you do your, your conjuration prayer and the spirit arrives, then basically one of the things you need to do is in the divine name of that you're using for calling the spirit and in the name of the angel and of the king, bind the spirit to appear in the bowl and remain in the bowl. And I guess that's something that we don't always talk about when we talk about conjuration is that there are points like that that are not necessarily clear in the ritual scripts or clear in the verbiage of the conjuration where sometimes you have to command the spirit to do certain things. And there are elements of how you command the spirit that are gonna be part of how you talk to the spirit and they're part of that do the usual concept. And so they're not always spelled out. So when it talks about like, appear now in a comely and beautiful visible appearance, appear now and appear without your terrors or whatever. Those are, those are elements of ligation. They're elements of causing the spirit to appear in a particular way in a particular space. And so sometimes those have to be amended for that particular space. And so the bowl can be the space. Now the bowl, it's potentially consecrated by a series of, of names which are pulled from the Higramantia and they're names that are used for aiding the scryer in the ritual that they are uh, drawn from. So I think that that can be sufficient, especially since you're working in a context where you have uh, your ancestors present to aid you, you have an angel conjured to aid you, you have the king conjured in order to uh, kind of control what's happening with the, the demon that you're conjuring. So using a triangle isn't necessarily something that's absolutely necessary. You might add it if you feel that the triangle helps with controlling the manifestation so that you're able to perceive and interact with the manifestation better, but there's elements of Luminarium already in place to do that for you. So. I don't think that you necessarily need to separate it out and make it something where it's in a more removed, safer space. If you're concerned about that, maybe have a bowl that has additional divine names along the rim uh, as, as more of a barrier. Uh, but like I said, you could use a triangle. I don't see a great deal of importance. Do you think that what you've already spoke of using the, the one of the four kings and using whatever thwarting angel do you think that's enough or do you think um, doing something like those initial invocations to like Nixon arrows 
maybe replacing one of them with that spirits or that demon's direct superior like you find in like the Verum or something like uh, either Lucifer or Astaroth or something like that or do you think that's kind of just overkill like you've already got enough to constrain the demon why take the extra step like what do you think if you've already called on the the appropriate angel and you've called on the appropriate king then you've probably got enough and if you look at the structure that is present in a lot of the grimoires the king is is really all you need for that you don't necessarily need the chiefs additionally now you could look at say the king relates to a particular prince of hell and so maybe you call upon that prince of hell also in addition to the king so that you've got that additional spirit that oversees the spirit that you're dealing with or some of the english grimoires have uh legates that the kings have and so you might call on the king's legate in order to retrieve the spirit and control the spirit because according to those those uh, english grimoires that's how you work with the kings is through their legates you could call upon one of the chiefs if you could identify which chief that particular spirit is under but then you're getting into kind of a bigger hierarchical restructuring where you have to kind of go through figure out all right which demons are under which king which kings relate to which other kings and rulers of legions uh, because you have another series of kings in addition to the four kings depending on which text you're looking at and then which of the three chiefs relate to that demon or which of the three chiefs do the particular kings fall under we're starting to see some more research into the, the thrones of hell and so you might even take it into like okay well which spirit rules which throne and which throne is this particular demon allied to and so when you're doing the conjuration maybe instead of going through all the thrones then you particularly focus the conjuration on the power of that throne that the spirit's connected to there's a lot of layers that you could go into with trying to map out the hierarchy of hell and how the demons connect to that and which different powers you could call upon and how that impacts your conjuration and, and whether or not you need to be conjuring multiple spirits for it and it's a big process to do all that and it's something that i know jake has worked on um stan is working on some stuff with that now i plan to work on some stuff with it in the future and there's definitely a handful of other magicians working on those things. But I think even as we start to unfold that, then that kind of becomes its own ritual structure of looking at how to purely use the infernal hierarchy on its own. I think in a structure like this, where you have other powers under which you can call the spirit, then you can, you can work that way. You don't necessarily need to go through the entire depth of of routing every piece of hell to come up and <laughs> your particular conjuration you could <laughs> interesting it might be fun maybe you get a bigger manifestation out of it i would love to hear people's experience experiments with that one of the first things that i think a lot of people who just kind of thumb through the actual script of the ritual is going to be the fact that you don't employ a circle in luminarium considering the fact that you draw from like that Tamron, which has one of the most involved circles that I've kind of come across in Grimoires, why in particular did you choose not to include the circle in Luminarium? 
Yeah, I guess it is a little weird that the Heptameron is sort of my go-to and such a big part of the Heptameron is the fact that the circle itself is a magical construct that changes based on when you do the ritual. And I think you've you've actually seen my Heptameron circle. Yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> but I I tend to uh I tend to kind of raw dog magic a bit <laughs> so i'm not a big circle guy i when i do large group rituals i tend to use one there but i think even the last one that i did i made the circle with the names and then traced the circle out with the sword but didn't draw out the rest of the circle it was just, just putting the written names on the floor and then tracing out the circle i have done times where I've set up magical circles where it took hours to build the circle and we used a dozen canisters of salt and went through all of the Psalms and everything as we made the circle. And it's cool and it's fun and it's pain in the ass to clean up. Um, <laughs> but, and it's, it's interesting for building that space. There's definitely an element of the ritual practice that building the circle does that's useful and good. But I don't think that circles are necessarily needed in all contexts. And I know a lot of magicians are going to disagree with me on that. Uh, I know that's, that's a big thing in the kind of grimoire and conjuration community is how important the circle is. And I think what people kind of forget sometimes in looking at that is the circle is based on the idea that you are going out to a clearing in the forest, you're going out to a cemetery, you're going out to an abandoned coliseum, uh, you're going out to some sort of remote place that's away from everything and you're conjuring. Or you are taking a room out in a, a side hut on your property and carving into the dirt when you're just sort of using that space for magic or drawing on your floor, your living room floor in chalk and doing magic, you're building a circle in a space that is not designated for magic. If you're working in a temple context or in a space where that space is consecrated and dedicated for magic and the space as sort of a permanent setup to do the things that a circle does, then you don't necessarily need to have a specific circle constructed in that space every time you're doing magic. There may be some magic where, yes, the circle makes sense because the circle is doing particular things in that magic. But if the circle is about creating a sanctified space that connects the magician, God, and the physical space of the working, and the spirit being conjured so that you have a nexus point in which all of those things unite so that the spirit and the magician can interact with each other. A temple space can do that as well. It doesn't have to be a circle space. What Luminarium does is it creates that type of temple space through the interaction with the ancestors. You basically set up an ancestor shrine and the ritual is worked at that ancestor shrine. You have another temple, another altar that's used in conjunction with the altar for your ancestor shrine. And so you're working in the space of the dead at that point. 
basically it's like a cemetery space it's a space where it is in between a space for the living and a space for the dead it's not fully the space of the living material world it's not fully the space of the spirit world it's a space where the two worlds meet together and the dead are sanctifying and protecting that space for you you're also calling on certain divine powers to create the grounds of creation so that you're in that sort of open magical space at the beginning of the cosmos in order to create the things that are going to happen uh, through the ritual. And so between those elements of creating a divine space and a spiritual space, in my view and my experience, you don't necessarily need a circle for working in that kind of context. And so that's sort of the approach that Luminarium is taking. You could create a circle, but you would have to have your ancestor shrine either in the middle of the floor or have it movable in order to bring it into the circle to do that. So I don't think that that's necessarily the way to go. But there's lots of magic and a lot of systems that don't use circles. Uh, they use other sorts of setup spaces, other sort of shrine spaces. And that's sort of more the approach that Luminarium is taking. Okay, so, so we've addressed a lot of the kind of concerns about the safety of porting Luminarium to um, a demonic format and calling it Infernal Spirits and everything. So I guess just to wrap that up, like the people out there who might say that overall this is just not a good idea and that uh, you shouldn't really freestyle demonic evo evocation in any sort, that like you should just stick to the Key of Solomon or the Grimoire Verum and go with that. What are your last thoughts for that argument? Well, I mean, the Key of Solomon and the Grimoire Verum were not the first ways that people worked with demons. There were lots of ways going back millennia that people have worked with demons. And so there will be a lot of ways in the future that people work with them as well. I think there are definitely some ways that people approach that are less useful or less good, uh, less reasoned out and don't make a lot of sense. I think there are some that are sort of popular to make fun of in the magical community and I'm not going to get into making fun of them here, but uh, listeners that know will know which one <laughs> we're talking about. And so I think, yeah, you've got to be smart. You've got to really look at what it is you're, you're using, whether or not it makes sense, whether or not it's just something someone came up with in order to sell some books by being scary and spooky, or if it's something that is actually a reasonable way to work. And in this case, the text isn't even advocating uh, working with demons using the text. So it's definitely not something where it's like, here's an easy way to work with demons and call them up and be super powerful and and become some sort of godlike being that is able to manifest everything that you've ever wanted in your life in two easy steps. It's definitely not that. And But that's pointing out that it's not that doesn't mean that you couldn't use it for working with demons or couldn't use it for working with other sorts of spirits than the ones that are given as examples in the book. You just have to do some modifications. And those modifications are still going to be drawn from traditional sources. So it's not saying necessarily completely eschew everything from any of these traditional grimoires. It's just saying, here's a way to work with grimoire-style conjuration in a simpler context that's still drawn from grimoires and their source texts and still incorporates the components that are needed in order to be successful in that type of magic. But it's a little bit more approachable and a little bit more tenable than what's in some of the texts, both in terms of how it's presented and in terms of 
what it's actually telling you you have to do. And then, yeah, you can amend it if you want to change what types of spirits you're working with. But when you amend it, you're still going to work with those same sorts of source texts in order to figure out how to amend it. So you might still look at things from one of the various keys of Solomon. You might still look at things from uh, the Gmorim Verum or Ars Rabindar, or you might look at things from uh, the Book of Oberon or from any number of other magical texts and say, okay, I want to use this conjuration. I want to use this spirit, but I'm going to do it in this context instead of the overall ritual context that's there. If you look at a lot of the workbooks of magic, so like the Book of Oberon uh, or like the Cambridge book, you'll find places where, yeah, you have whole rituals that are laid out, but you have other places where it's like, here's a conjuration for calling Lucifer. Here's a conjuration for calling this spirit. Here's a bunch of spirits. Here's a conjuration for calling a spirit for this purpose. It's not necessarily always here's a whole ritual and these are the steps you take in the whole ritual. A lot of times it's like, well, here's a ritual for creating a circle. Here's another ritual for creating a circle. Here's a ritual for cutting a bat's wing and consecrating its blood to make ink. But here's another way to do it. And so the early texts had that element of pick one of several various options and go with that. And so what this is doing is it's picked some options and it's put those options together in a way that works in a way that's simple. And so then it's just kind of up to you with how you're going to use it from there. There's a pretty legitimate kind of do you theme to Luminarium that I, that I really liked a lot. Another, another thing that I realized as I was first kind of, going through the spells and and I guess deciding which spell I wanted to kind of take a crack at and everything and test run Luminarium was I realized that you didn't see a lot of mysticism kind of wound up in Luminarium at least for the purposes of the spells most of the spells that you include are pretty much for material effects essentially with this kind of current that you see in a lot of like angelic works these days and contemporary grimoires what do you think about that difference between doing specifically like angelic magic for mystical purposes versus material effects themselves do you think one is more noble than the other do you think you know they both have their place what are your thoughts well i it, i've made it my goal to keep all of the mystical methods a secret that i only use for myself <laughs> uh, I, I uh we definitely again with the sort of post golden dawn world there's definitely an element where magic has been wrongly conflated with mysticism for generations now, to the point where when you look at certain occult authors, contemporary ones, as well as ones from back during the magical revival, they don't really understand the difference between magic and mysticism. And they don't even necessarily believe in magic. They believe in mysticism, but they like the idea of magic ritual. They like the idea of dramatic ritual. They like the idea of putting on costumes and waving swords around. And so instead of getting into a proper mystical system that has centuries of, of history behind it and has produced a bunch of really successful mystics, they work with magic and try to do mysticism through magic. And 
I know I just said that in a way that makes it sound like it's a horribly stupid, silly thing, but it's not. It is something that can work and it can work well. I think sometimes it's a little more cumbersome than it needs to be and it's a little confusing for people because it's still treated in a way where there's not a clear divide between what's magic and what's mysticism and people are trying to figure that out as they go through the beginning and so they get sort of skewed ideas about both. Uh, I think there's better ways to do that element of it but the actual method of high magic or using magic for mystical purposes because as much as people complain about low magic versus high magic or think that high magic equates to ceremonial magic or high magic equates to learned ritual magic high magic is is just the idea of using magical ritual to do mysticism which is basically what a lot of theurgy was as well and so it is something that is attested and has history and can work but it's not really what magic is magic is about creating change creating effects magic is is wonder working magic is doing things that are going to make material differences in your world or the world of others and there are places where magic and mysticism overlap there are places where they touch each other there's places where they can benefit each other but they are not the same thing and so this is not a text of mysticism although it could be used for mystical purposes so you could conjure angels and not ask them to do stuff for you you could conjure angels and ask them to work on you to change you you could do sacramental rituals with the angels through this you could ask for visions of the heavens and to be moved through visionary processes to change and augment you using the system in luminarium it's not really what it was well i guess i won't say it's not what it's designed for it's designed to have a simple way to contact spirits and what you choose to use that contact for is up to you it was written in mind of being a magic book and so it gives examples for doing magic it doesn't really give examples for mysticism but it does talk about how you can use the conjurations to call the angels and interact with the angels and have an experience with the angels or you can call the angels to ask them for knowledge or information about something or you can call them for some particular material purpose or call them to help command the aerial spirits and have the aerial spirits perform a particular purpose for you so you've got all of those options there uh, but yeah the examples are examples that are material examples because that's the magic end of things and that's the easier thing to give an example of as far as the mystical end of things uh yeah call upon michael ask michael to show you a bunch of things related to his nature and how to come more into contact with that nature and how to allow that nature to shape you and develop you and make you into a better person and what virtues are aligned to him and how you can obtain those virtues and to see the level of heaven that he oversees and do that with the rest of the angels and you can have a whole mystical process with this system and it'd be a fairly simple fairly accessible mystical process uh, but it's it's written and presented as a magic book and so it focuses on the magic end of things i don't want to say that one is more noble than the other specifically 
And the reason I hedge on that is because I don't want to create a, a value sense in terms of differentiating the two. I think a lot of times people get very upset about labels and they get very upset about differentiating things because they believe that it's automatically assigning a value. And it's not. Sometimes we have to differentiate things. Sometimes we have to label things simply because it's the only way that those things can truly be understand, uh, understood. And by assigning those labels, assigning those understandings to them, we can get a deeper view of what their intrinsic specific values are. And they become each more valuable to us in that regard, as opposed to something where we say one is better than the other. There's definitely going to be times where magic is better than mysticism. If you really need to fix your car situation, you could try to do that with mysticism, but it will be a little harder and probably less effective. Magic is going to be better for that. If you feel like there's something missing in your life and you've tried to find all sorts of ways to fill that hole and all sorts of distractions and enjoyments and you still feel a certain emptiness, maybe you are searching for something that's beyond what's just in front of you in life and then mysticism is going to be the answer for that. And in that case, mysticism is probably going to be better than magic. So it really depends on your situation and your goals as to which one is the more noble or which one is the better thing. So then on that notion to take that like a step farther or a step further, sometimes you see people attach like a certain duality to spirit magic where they consider like magic for material purposes to be specifically reserved for infernal spirits and mystical stuff, spiritual attainment, all that to be kind of set aside for angelic entities and stuff. So like, what are your opinions concerning that like sort of dichotomy that you kind of see set up? Like, do you think that's a, correct representation of how magicians should interact with those spirits do you think it's do you think it's harmless do you think it could even be kind of damaging in a certain way uh well i think that when people talk about breaking out of dualism and breaking out of kind of a false dichotomy in magic that there is an extent to which that is important and there's also an extent to where people start taking that concept further than what it actually means. And again, sort of saying that any sort of distinction between things is creating a, a false dichotomy or being dualistic. And that that sort of dualism is just anathema to anything magical. And that's just not the case. And I think again, where we have the idea of dualism as a problem is when we start to create dualistic divides that are based on valuation or based on good and evil or right and wrong. Uh, and we're sort of setting up the world as if it's this kind of cosmic battle between things. That's the element of dualism that is useful for us to try to transcend. And there's points where that can be useful, probably more so in mysticism than in magic. But I would say it's not something where we necessarily need to say anything in the scope of human experience that uses that worldview is wrong or is bad. It's just that we need to recognize that sometimes there's more than one worldview that we can use in more than one situation. 
And this is not the same as kind of the chaos magic paradigm shifting. Uh, it's more the sense of multiple things can be true at the same time, as opposed to nothing is true and we just need to rotate through how we're interacting with that lack of truth. More so, a lot of things are true, and sometimes those things that are true seem conflicting to us even when they aren't actually conflicting. They seem mutually exclusive even when they're not actually mutually exclusive. And I think that plays into the overall idea of a non-dualism, the ability to accept multiple true worldviews at the same time and use them in the context that are the context that are appropriate for them. Now, as far as spirits go, I would say that we don't want to be overly dualistic in the sense of these spirits are good, these spirits are bad. Where it's useful to understand differences in spirits is to understand elements of personality, not necessarily elements of scope, because when we're looking at the spirits that people tend to apply this dualism to, they generally have a broad scope, uh, regardless of which end of the spectrum they are on. Um, but they're still going to interact with things and work with things in different ways, and there's still going to be different ways that we're going to interact with them and call upon them. And so we do need to understand those differences in order to be able to work with them effectively and in order to be able to make choices about when we want to work with one versus when we want to work with another. It's too simplistic to say that there's no difference between angels and there's no difference between demons. And for any given thing, you should call on any given angel or any given demon and nothing matters except for your individual preference or feeling at the moment. If it were that easy, if that were the case, there wouldn't be all these books with all these different explanations of different spirits and all these different methods for calling them. There's, there's got to be more to it than just that. Now, we don't necessarily have to buy into demons are evil hellspawn that are bent on destroying the cosmos and destroying mankind and that they hate us and want to bring us down and by conjuring them that we're going to become the puppets of, of Satan and sell our souls and go to hell. And that angels are these warriors of salvation that are going to come and strike down the demons and be more powerful and then and teach us the errors of our ways and lead us to some sort of better, more godly life. But at the same time, from interacting with them and looking at the way that they do things, we can see that demons are going to be more concerned with motion, with change, with things occurring in the world, with changing things that are occurring in the world, uh, with kind of mixing things up, tearing things up, um, breaking things down and building them into something else. Angels are going to be concerned with perception and action and how we look at things and how we relate to things and how we move through things and how the choices we're making impact things. And so because they reside in different spaces, they, they approach and view the world in different ways, their interactions with us are going to look different. And that's not necessarily 
a good or bad or a more noble or less noble sort of thing it's it can be a very utilitarian thing of where are you comfortable which way do you want change to occur in your life uh what sort of ritual approach are you comfortable with uh what sort of spirits do you relate to more and just sort of defining and deciding how you're going to approach them based on those factors as opposed to well one is good one is bad one is for spiritual attainment one is for material purposes because you can go to the angels for material things they can provide material things sometimes they'll provide them in ways that are very comfortable sometimes they'll provide them in ways that are very painful but they will also be spirits that you can go to for spiritual things for guidance and for understanding and they'll probably try to tack that on when you're doing something material with them with demons you can go to them for knowledge you can go to them for wisdom they can teach you things about the world they can teach you things about yourself uh they can help you see things you didn't see before they can help you learn things uh, that's a big part of what the role of demons traditionally was in historical magic so if that's the case, you can definitely work a path of spiritual attainment and a path of sort of theurgic development while kind of humans for that purpose. But the more straightforward way to look at them and work with them is to call them for things that you need, to call them for material things. And for a lot of them, when it's talking about what they do, it's they provide these things, they provide these powers, and they teach you this knowledge. So it's really a question of where you're going with it and how you're using it at that point, if you're trying to use it for something that is more get things done in your life, or if you're using it for something that's more move yourself along a trajectory. I mean, I, I definitely see what you're saying with that. I definitely I definitely agree with that, too. I think that it's, it's kind of interesting how just in talking about Luminarium, and the methods, the mentality, you know, the intention that went behind it. I think it's kind of funny how everything that we've talked about has almost in a way also been directly pulled from your first book. Yeah, from Living Spirits. And so I guess it kind of got the thought, it kind of got me thinking, like, did you specifically intend Luminarium to, like, construct and syncretize, like, the basic practices of Living Spirits? Or... Did you, or did it just kind of happen that way? And like, was, did you originally intend Luminarium to kind of stand independently from living spirits and just to sort of elucidate and expedite planetary magic? Or did you intend them to kind of really piggyback off one of it, one another? Well, the intention was definitely for it to be its own independent work, but the kind of worldview and approach to magic that I describe in living spirits is essentially my worldview and approach to magic. So that's going to be the worldview that informs other things that I put together. Now, if I'm writing something about a very particular existing system, you'll probably see less of that sort of living spirits worldview in how I'm describing that system. If I'm trying to basically give like a discrete presentation of this is what the Merkava is. This is how the Merkava was historically. This is how it would look if you were doing it historically. Now, if I was writing it, uh, something about the Merkava, I was writing 
this is sort of what the Merkava was historically, and this is how I would advise that you work it into an existing contemporary magical practice. That existing contemporary magical practice exploration might have something that looks more like it's impacted by the thoughts and ideas that are described in living spirits. And so I think it's kind of a question of, am I writing something that is my view on how to do things, or am I writing something where I'm presenting something about an existing system? And that's gonna kind of determine whether or not my own worldview and my own way of working is showing through in this, because it's just basically presenting a ritual system and a system for preparing for that ritual system, kind of almost creating its own practical system in and of itself. You could, you could really describe Luminarium as a system of magic as much as it is a book. It, yeah, it's going to draw from that worldview. That's the worldview that I operate in and it's going to be based in that, but it's not intended necessarily as a sequel or as a part of a series. There is a sequel to Living Spirits that I'm working on that is kind of a step-by-step primer for how to be a sorcerer or magician working within this living world of spirits. Uh, But that's a a separate, more involved text that I'll be working on for a while longer. Uh, This was definitely just supposed to be kind of a standalone here is a way to do magic, go do magic kind of thing. It definitely works exactly in that structure. With that being one of its definite greatest strengths, what do you think are some of the other strengths that you really intended outside of just that primary expediting kind of sense? And yeah, like who who was the intended audience with this? Well, I think as far as, I'll start with the intended audience because that's the easier part of the question. The intended audience, was definitely more of your people who are interested in conjuring spirits, but maybe feel put off by the effort involved in preparing for it or are not sure where to go about beginning with it. Because I think that's something that for me years ago was a hurdle. Like I I couldn't find books that talked about that. I couldn't find real instruction on that from people. And it was something I really wanted to get into, but it took me much longer to get into it than it probably should have because the road towards it was so obfuscated. And so this is intended to be something that allows people to jump on that horse and ride right away without having to jump through a bunch of hoops to get there. When I was sending out beta test copies to people, uh, one of the people that I sent one to was someone who has, to my knowledge, never done any magic, never read any uh, magic at all and I was very curious to see how that went for him uh, in his case I'm still waiting to hear from him uh, as he's wrapping up uh, some some other stuff at the time and not able to dig into it till after I was done putting everything together but I think definitely it fits that space of someone who's never done any magic before or maybe they've done some magic but they haven't done any spirit conjuration can pick up Luminarium and run with it right away and within a week or so be experimenting with conjuring spirits. And that's that's the main goal. As far as intermediate or adept practitioners, I think there are things in there that will be useful for them. I haven't had the chance to have any really go through it and and give me their feedback on whether or not they found it as something that would be useful for them. But it presents a system of conjuring spirits that's different from what's out there already. It's not like 
certain attempts of approaching something uh, that approaching it in a different context where it's so far afield from conjuration and from exorcism and from, from conventional European traditional magic that it's unrecognizable or is its own bizarre thing that's somewhat questionable. This is definitely grounded in European traditional magic structure and in ideas that are those ideas which tie to European traditional magic. But it simplifies things. It adds in components that augment the scrying process and should empower and clarify that even in an experienced magician. And it also provides a different approach to preparation that draws on multiple different sources and multiple different traditions so that the magician has different options for how to create sort of a spiritual power and authority and how to go about preparing themselves so that they're able to effectively engage in conjuration regardless of what their background is. So I think for experienced magicians, intermediate magicians, adept magicians, those elements of it maybe well going through and saying, all right, well, here is an approach to building a spirit relationship that I hadn't looked at, or here's a particular prayer practice or ritual practice that I can use that I hadn't thought about using with conjuration before. And I can kind of magically augment my preparation practice in order to make things easier when I'm going into conjuration. Here's elements of this conjuration that build a structure that's not like the structure that I'm used to using in a conjuration, but there's ways that this is augmenting the way that the overall magic of the conjuration is going to work. Luminarium uses an approach where, again, it starts with building the universe. It starts with calling upon your ancestors. It starts with calling upon divine powers that specifically tie sources of magic to targets of magic so that there is a capability for impact and a capability for change. Those are all things that are built into the ritual structure of Luminarium that are not built into most conjuration systems, at least not in a way that is as active and present. It builds in work with a, with a, a system for illuminating your spiritual vision through work with your Holy Guardian Angel, uh, which again is something that's not very present in most grimoire magic. It has a way of preparing and consecrating you as the scryer so that that work with your angel allows you to see the spirit more clearly and understand the spirit more clearly. So those are things that are different from what's out there that may be useful and may help people who are already existing spirit conjurers engage their work differently or update their work in a way where they might pull pieces from this and adapt them to what they're doing as well. So I think there is something for experienced practitioners as well as new practitioners, but I think its big strength is that it's something that you can just hand to a new kid off the street and they can go and become a magician. Yeah, I mean, for sure. It definitely, uh, <laughs> it has that power behind it. So we've, we've, talked, we've talked about the strengths, the innovations, what Luminarium can do to augment some of these already working kind of ritual routines. Is there anything about Luminarium that you won't find elsewhere in the contemporary grimoire market? Is there anything that is really unique to itself as a grimoire? Uh, well, I think that 
You sort of noted earlier that the particular PGM spell that it draws from, which uh, is in PGM 4, starting at line 930, is one that you don't see discussed frequently. It's not one that's that's treated in a lot of places. And so I think the way that this is used here and the way that it's used as part of an overall conjuration structure is something that is new and somewhat unique. And I do talk about it in Living Spirits and I present a ritual that uses it in Living Spirits, but I think this highlights it in more of an active way for people to understand and explore it. Another thing that is kind of cool that is not really available in many other book sources that I'm aware of, it's in a few places online, and if you go back and look at a few of the manuscripts that are scanned, it, it has the seals for the Ariel Kings and that's something that you're not going to find in a lot of texts and so that's sort of unusual and interesting and can be applied outside of just using this particular ritual structure another thing with it in living spirits i talked a bit about how you'll see references to the exorcist showing the pentacle of solomon to the spirit in order to cause spirits to be obedient and i talked about how there are certain pentacles that are there that subdue and control spirits as opposed to pentacles that are for particular magical purposes and sort of gave the idea that when a magician is conjuring a spirit, they can augment their control of those spirits by using these pentacles as the pentacle that's shown as the pentacle of Solomon as opposed to kind of a general pentacle that's used like a Laman. Later on, there was some discussion in the occult community about the Kandari, uh, which are essentially a series of pentacles that are used for creating the magical circle or the ritual space in order to help augment the magician's ability to command spirits. And I don't use the Kandari here, but that discussion of the Kandari went on to discussion about the possibility that the pentacles for controlling the spirits, which often get overlooked, are kind of a descendant of the idea of the Kandari, that having these pentacles that are there in order to create the spiritual control was something that came into being in place of having this series of pentacles around the ring of the circle in order to create control. And so Luminarium uses that in work with the aerial spirits. It presents those pentacles that are used for controlling the spirits of the particular planetary orders as a pentacle that you can consecrate and use when calling upon the, the aerial spirits, which is something that it's in the Key of Solomon. It's, it's something that's in the grimoires, but it's not something that is frequently touched on by a lot of magicians talking about conjuration practices. I, I definitely felt that there was some stuff in Luminarium that I really wasn't seeing in other sources. Um, and so, I mean, at this point, we've pretty much, we've pretty much covered the majority of the material that, that, you know, that you're going to find in Luminarium. So I guess at this point, I mean, we've talked about how, about, about your other works, about how Luminarium kind of ties into the greater structure of your writing pieces that you, that you've released. So then, Aside from the other book you've already previously mentioned, what other projects do you kind of have going on? I mean, even even if it's outside of the books, I know you have the blog going. I know you're just getting started with a lot of these podcasts. Like, where, uh, where are you concentrating the majority of your efforts going on now that Luminarium's finished? Uh, well, 
I don't know that I can say where I'm concentrating the majority of my efforts because I'm trying to work on a whole lot of things. And, uh, definitely makes it more difficult to get anything done, but it, it tends to be the way that I approach projects and then eventually it'll narrow down to one and focus on it. So I'm hoping to get to that narrowing down to one and focusing on. As far as things that are coming up, I have recently started a Ko-Fi page to go with my various creative endeavors. And that's a system kind of like Patreon, where you can go on and you can make a contribution in support of a creator, or you can subscribe to support a creator. And so my plan with that is I'm going to be releasing some audio classes as subscriber content. The goal is going to be each month to have one class that's kind of like a one-off class, and then one class that's part of a series. And so have two classes per month. Uh, through that as part of the subscriber content. And there might be some additional content that goes in with that some months, uh, but that'll be sort of the baseline of what's offered there. Uh, the initial series that I'm planning to do is one on simplified spirit conjuration methods and going through a handful of different methods uh, for conjuring spirits and ways to adapt those different methods, but addressing some of the needs that people have as far as how to do it in uh, confined spaces or with small amounts of time, things along those lines. And looking at some, instead of creating a new source, looking at some traditional sources to give options for that. The the one-off classes, some of those will be classes that I've done live before and have recordings of but haven't released otherwise. And then some of them will be new ones that are recorded specifically for this. I'm also looking at starting to offer some classes that would be available for individual download and I'm debating on offering some live online classes. I've always kind of hedged about doing the live online thing, but uh, I know that people like that. So I may be, may be doing some of those pretty soon. As far as other books go, I am... <clears throat> working on a series of essays related to the Nukava or the Kehaloid system of mysticism, which is the earliest documented system of Jewish mysticism. It involved movements through the seven heavens and then in the final heaven, Erevot, or perhaps beyond the final heaven of Erevot, depending on which text you're looking at, there's an additional series of seven palaces. and so moving through the heavens, you learn different songs, different angel names and signs. And by going through those heavens, you gain the ability to work with the spirits of those heavens. You gain uh, power over things ruled by those heavens and learn various secrets there and the ability to move into the next heaven. And then from the palaces, if you know the secret angelic names and signs, then you're able to move through the palaces and eventually enter the throne room of God and gain vision of God. And so that's something that I've had uh, an interest in since about 2001 and have gone through various spurts of, of research and writing. There. And I have a pretty in-depth essay looking at the Sword of Moses and the Testament of Solomon that I've had for years and have kind of looked at putting some other essays with in order to release something uh, with that. And so I've started writing some additional essays to go along with that. And 
Uh, that's a project that I'm planning to release at some point once I have a couple essays written to go into that that collection. I'm also working on a piece on the Olympic spirits. I have a series of journal entries on my first interactions with them and then some journal entries for subsequent interactions and I'm doing some more conjurations to kind of clarify some of the things that I experienced in those uh, those initial conjurations. And the new project goes through the overall setup of the conjuration, <clears throat> goes through some analysis of working with the spirits, presents all of the journal entries and then analysis of the individual journal entries and then sort of a meta-analysis of how the information from the different conjurations tie together. And that'll be presented along with uh, an essay that I previous pub previously published on the history of the Olympic spirits in occult literature. And should be one of the more thorough works on the Olympic spirits available at that point. There's some other parts of looking at the Arbitel that I'm thinking of writing about for that. But I have some outlines for those, but I'm going to kind of decide as I get deeper into the project whether or not to do that additional piece of it as well. I'm partway through a text on the Holy Guardian Angel, which that is expanding on the material that was in Living Spirits. It has a series of rituals that I decided not to include in Living Spirits, and it'll have material around those rituals, but also a good bit of material on the history of the concept and sort of developing a deeper understanding of the concept by looking at that history. So that's become a bit of a bigger project than I originally thought it was going to be because there's such a history there and a lot of it's really interesting, but a lot of it's also stuff where it's very deep and involves a lot of reflection and so it can be kind of difficult to write about. Uh, but hopefully it'll be pretty cool when it comes together. As I mentioned, there's a sequel to Living Spirits, which will be a practical approach to the ideas in Living Spirits and kind of move the magician from sort of a place where if they haven't done any magic, they can start there, or even if they have done magic but are trying to move into this this world of working with spirits in a relational relationship context, uh, where you're understanding the living nature of the world as an overall uh, spiritual ecosystem, then this will sort of walk you through step-by-step step of starting small and building up a whole skill set and a whole range of spirit relationships. So those are, are kind of the big main projects right now, I think. Uh, there's a few other back burner ones that are things that I've started out over the years and have kind of continued working on slowly. Um, most of those will be kind of smaller, more introductory things. Uh, they're not the, the bigger, more exciting thing. Uh, having explained all of those things, it kind of sounds like it's a lot. <laughs> so, having the other small background things might be too much anyway. Well, I feel like at the, uh, at the very least, for anybody who's already got your first book and who really liked the material that they've read by you, be it or Living Spirits or the blog or anything like that, they uh, definitely have a lot of material to look forward to in the next coming couple years or 
who knows however long it takes you to work through that massive pile of projects you got going on. Well, I will look forward to updating people as they come out. Thank you, Alexander, for uh, signing on with me tonight to help facilitate this. Hopefully people enjoyed it and it was great talking with you. Absolutely, thank you, it was a lot of fun. that's it for our second special episode. Thank you so much for being here to listen. Alexander and I have known each other for several years and have frequently talked about magic, so I figured with his experience testing out the book, he was one of the best options for interviewing me on In the Company of Stars. I hope you all had as much fun listening as we had chatting. In the interview, I said I had opportunities to have beginners test Luminarium, but not intermediate and advanced magicians. I misspoke when I said that. It's been tested by beginners and intermediate practitioners. As for show stuff, our music was a public domain recording of the Jupiter Suite from Gustav Holst's Planetary Cycle. You can find us on Anchor.fm, Stitcher Radio, YouTube, and hopefully some other podcast outlets. My YouTube channel and my much underused Twitter are Ararita418. You can also find us on Facebook as In the Company of Stars. Luminarium should be available during the first weekend of June on Amazon in paperback and on Kindle. The Kindle edition is currently available for pre-order and is linked to in the show notes. In a few weeks, it will also be available, along with Living Spirits, from Barnes & Noble in both paperback and hardback. The subscriber content we mentioned should begin showing up on Ko-Fi around the middle of the month, and we'll do an announcement for that when it happens. Remember to like, follow, and share, and again... Thank you so much for listening.